All right, Jacob. Happy Friday night. Happy Friday night to you. <laughs> um, Hector should be joining us here in a few minutes, um, but I'm really excited about this conversation tonight. Uh, and so tonight we're going to talk about how pricing can help fix all of your problems, um, or it can be the root cause of your problems. Um, so, um, yeah, so uh, first, Jacob, it, it, it'd be great to hear a little about your kind of journey around pricing. If you have a, if there is a journey that you have to share about around pricing, it'd be great for, for so. Uh, I started out obviously working for a traditional accounting firm and obviously there we always priced by the hour, um, almost always. So we kind of did that journey, um, bounced around a couple of different accounting firms and was always pricing by the hour. And when I went out uh, and started my own firm, my first client was an hourly client. I built them by the hour, mostly CFO style work and some was actually at the client on site, my very first client and billing by the hour. But very quickly after that, I started shifting to more of a, at that time, I'll say it wasn't a value bill. It was a flat bill, right? Um, just a, a number I said, hey, I'll do your bookkeeping for this price, right? <laughs> like, um, without even fully understanding what that price meant. You know, it was more like, let me throw a number out there. I think they'll say yes to and that way I can get some work. <clears throat> That's great. That's really, really great. So, so, so yeah, so your journey started with hourly billing, which is, yep. which is what I think the majority of people who go into professional services experience, whether you're an attorney, an accountant, a, a general management consultant, if you work at any of the major firms, um, hourly billing tends to be the common theme around, around um, general kind of pricing um, in regards to billing. Um, now, did, did you were you involved in the actual pricing of services at all at any of the previous firms you worked at before you started your own? Um, yeah, I was on some of them. So I go back uh, two of the firms I was at. I was involved in pricing. Mm -hmm. uh, the one firm was about thirteen people. There were certain clients I was involved in pricing on. Many other clients, I was not part of that conversation. Within the firm before I uh, launched my own, I set a lot of my own pricing, um, but it was supposed to be hourly rate. We did a few project-based works or we would bid on a project, right? Like throw a number out there. Um, but there really wasn't any science or art to it at all. It was just throw a number out there. Yeah. Um, or do it on an hourly basis. Yeah, that makes, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. So... I, uh, I'll tell you about my journey with pricing here in Burlington, Vermont. And so when I, when I moved here um, seven and a half years ago, I wasn't familiar with the market at all. Right? I, just didn't under, I just didn't know the kind of pricing or price that I would be able to charge for the work I wanted to do as a CFO. And so when I moved here, I basically went to networking events and started um, selling myself as a part-time CFO. And I was at the time still a CFO for a uh, for a company um, uh, in the in the town that we moved from, uh, but uh, I knew that that job wasn't going to last forever because I just moved across the country to another state, and they were being very nice. Um, but at some point, you know, they would they would I would be able I would grow up out of that job, and uh, I would get tired of traveling and all those things, and so started meeting clients, and um, so I started experimenting with the idea of charging a flat monthly fee. Um, for my services. And I had learned that from uh, a mentor, a business mentor of mine when I lived in Arizona and um, that I worked for right out of college. I worked for this guy. He was, um, he was a, uh, the, the practice leader of the consulting division of a CPA firm in Phoenix. And I went to work for him and he taught me a lot, uh, but he taught me how to do uh, pricing and how to price at a flat monthly fee, um, and um, and so I watched um, how they how he did that with with the consulting practice, and um, and uh, and so I I just kind of followed I you know that's basically what he taught me so I kind of followed so I kind of benefited from this opportunity to to learn uh, from him, 
So then when I came to Burlington, I decided, okay, let's start really low. So I think my first client, I think I set a contract out for 500 a month, right? Like just like 500 a month, I'll do some things for a few hours a week. And of course the client said yes, because that's such a cheap price for a CFO, right? right. Um, and then after, um, after that first client, I now had a referenceable client. You get the first client, you do good work. You have a referenceable client, only client I had at Burlington started asking you around for more, uh, more clients. Hey, Hector, welcome. Welcome to the show. Um, and so uh, the next clients, then I started raising the price. And basically my, my, my theory was I needed to get to a place where half of the people I talked to said no to my price or said it was too high. And half of the people said yes. But as long as everybody kept saying yes, I knew I was too low. That's the kind of like my experience. Right. And I didn't, I didn't read anything about pricing. I didn't take a pricing class. That's just what I did. And I then later learned and realized that was, that was called uh, fixed fee pricing basically. Um, although I didn't really bundle, I didn't guarantee a bundle of services generally in those pricing. It was just like, Hey, you're going to get me for X amount of time frame or up to X amount of time frame. It's a use it or lose it time frame. Um, and, and unlike, not like a retainer where they pay you to have hours right. that you eat in. It's a user to lose a time frame. This is the fixed fee. And I will do basically anything related to accounting for you. Um, so that was my experiment up until then. I basically, then I launched reconciled um, three and a half years in. And that's when I began reading about and learning more about value-based pricing. Um, and I still don't think I fully understand value-based pricing Hector is pretty much an expert on value-based pricing because he talks about it like every day. I'm um, not an expert. I just read a book. I read, one, read, I read this book. That's there it. There you go. Ron <laughs> Baker's book. There you go. So Ron's the expert. But it's very important that I have the book next to me. It's like uh, yeah. it's it's like the Bible, like my my own version of the Bible. <laughs> yes. And Hector knows I'm a big fan of the Bible. So that's what, he loves re referencing it every once in a while. <laughs> conversation we're but, both we're both a fan of the bible we just got <laughs> different bibles <laughs> oh my goodness that's a good point that's a really good touche that's a really good point so hector i asked jacob jacob shared his um a little bit of his journey on pricing because i think it, it allows lots of people to kind of relate to us and i shared my journey on pricing tell us a little bit just you know not the hector sermon version of pricing story but you know the the five minute two minute 30 second story on your journey with pricing and like, you know, why you're so fascinated about it today. And and, and the, it obviously relates to the topic tonight. Well, I'm, a, I'm an enormous amount of pressure to get this one, right. <laughs> um, you know, pr pricing was something I was a bit skeptical about, about five years ago when I heard, first heard uh, Ron Baker speak, I, he, he made it seem like that was sort of the solution to all the problems. And I was like, not really, you know, we got other problems, right? We got people using QuickBooks online five years ago. That was kind of, like, kind of a problem, right? Because it was, it was such a horrendous experience five years ago. Uh, you know, it was great, you know, and we had people, um, you know, using the, using the software wrong and we had people cheating on their taxes and we had all sorts of things that go on in the accounting world. And, and it's like, yeah, really pricing is, is how you solve everything. And, and little by little, as I started, you know, reading more, more stuff, uh, talking to some of the experts, uh, talking through it, testing it. I think testing it is mm. the most important thing because you want to kind of throw it out there, see what happens mm. um, with, with, with new customers and talking about it. Because, you know, like Michael thinks I'm an expert at it because I talk about it a lot. And that's kind of true and half untrue. So I feel very comfortable talking about it because I've been talking about it, but I don't think I'm an expert at it. I still think I get price wrong, but the one concept that really just changed the way I think is when it got in my head that every time the customer says yes to a price, whatever price it is, the big question is, would they have said yes to something a little bit bigger, right? And every time they say no to a price, that means that you took a position and they were not they were not playing the same game you were and they ousted themselves out. So we got those two things going on, right? 
when customers tell you yes, there's a possibility that they could have said yes to more. And, and, and it's fascinating to think what, what is that threshold, right? And at what point, what price they would have said no to. So I will never, no, none of us will never know because every time somebody tells you no, that means maybe they would have said yes to a dollar less, right? And, and, and every time somebody tells you yes, we don't know how far that would have gone until they, they, they would have said yes. So that's the value gap. That is the difference between your understanding of value and the customer's understanding of value. And that's all psychological. That's all personal. It's all subjective. It's all circumstantial. And there are situations, and, and this is very true, there are situations where you can price the exact same service in a different circumstance and your customer could say yes or they could say no, right? If, there could be so many individual personal things happening in that person's life that could have changed their decision at that moment. And there could have been one wrong word that you, that you said during the conversation that could have turned the customer off or you could have said one right word that made the customer very excited about working with you. So I've been fascinated with pricing ever since I kind of understood that concept. And I talk about it not because I think I'm an expert. I talk about it because I know that the more pushback people give me on it, the more opportunity I have to state my case. And the more times that I've maybe wrong in a position, people will intellectually tell me, you know, Hector, I have a different opinion and I hear it. And that's how I grow in this concept. But I think pricing fixes everything. I mean, it's amazing. Prices just fixes everything. I mean, you know, we, I think we're going to go down the rabbit hole and discuss all the different examples, but the easiest way and most elegant way to get rid of a client is to raise a price to a level that they can't pay, but a level that you feel comfortable taking on, continuing to take on the pain if they keep saying, if they say right. yes. So that's, that's such an interesting way. The, of the, the POA, the POA price, right? The POA yeah. price increase, right? Yeah. It's, it's the, like you said, um, what are elegant ways in which we can use price to both keep a client, let go of a client, um, acquire a new client, uh, refer a client to, there's all different ways to look at it. One of the comments, Hector, that when you were talking, it made me think about was um, the gap, the value gap in pricing until that gap is fully closed. I don't believe the exchange is ever very, is actually truly fair, or maybe there's a better word is until the value gap is closed between you and your customer on that price, you're actually not maximizing the amount of value you both could receive out of the deal. There's a concept in negotiation that's also true about this, where in negotiation, generally most parties approach negotiation as I want my side to win better than your side wins, or I want my side to win and your side to lose. So we think about when you go and sell your something that you want to sell, or you want to go buy a car, you, you kind of are figuring out a way for the dealer to lose and you to win. That's the approach you generally take. But there's a concept of negotiation where, and the same thing goes with pricing, where you actually want both parties to win maximally. There is a scenario where you both actually win out on your value. And that's when, that's what you talked about, the, the value gap. If you can close the value gap and not, 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 not compromise, not, oh, we're gonna both going to compromise to a price we both are acceptable about. It's more, no, we're going to close the value gap so that we actually both fully win the most value on each side then then both sides win and so that's you know some of your comments kind of initially made me think about that um so jacob why don't you kick us off with um elegant ways in which you use price to fix a problem hector mentioned you know letting a client go you can share a story like that or Maybe a way you used it to win win in a price negotiation or what? What are different ways in which you use something you want to share? Yeah, I, I think the example we all have many of is raising the price to get rid of the client, right? Where um, I think that's the common one. Um, just because the client's a pain in the neck, 
says, you know, taking way too much time, taking too much of your staff's time. So it's an elegant way to solve that problem. But I think I'll dive down a, a different one where, you know, sometimes that price can solve other problems as well by really digging into what the value that the client wants and then matching your price to that, right? And truly matching it to their value where sometimes we come in and say we can provide X value, right? But there's many times a client doesn't want that value. So mm. it can also be a solution of forcing you to scale your services to what that client is truly looking for. And then eventually upselling that in the long run when they're ready for more value. So I think sometimes we go into things with price as well saying, we're going to solve the world's problems, but many clients need step one first, right? And to move on from that. Um, so I think that's a, an interesting position that we definitely have to look at. And I know Hector and I have talked about this, uh, different clients at different times that you have to sometimes scale back and say, let's solve step one for them before they can even realize what's possible. Um, so sometimes you use price to help a client achieve more and you both win in the long run. And um, I, I, I want to draw an analogy to that, Jacob. If, if you walk into a Best Buy, right, and you want to buy a 60-inch screen, you know, you know kind of what you want. You've done your research. It costs $900. You stand next to it. You, you're in love with your idea. And then next to it, there's the one that's $1,200. And you already made your decision. Yours is the best bang for the buck. But you're looking at the second one, and you're, imagining the possibilities right like what so and before you move forward you look at the tv and you go if i go with this one what else am i going to get right and, and you look at the little card of features and you're like what 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 are the extra features and then you call a salesperson over and say why why is this one more expensive than that one i used to work in best buy i can tell you that question <laughs> all the time no one ever asks what you know, what's, can you compare the features between the two? They always say, why is that one more expensive than this one? Because your brain automatically tells you that because it's more expensive, it's better. And, and there's something else that I'm getting if I pay more. But then what happens is the minute you start looking at that one for too long, then when you go back to yours, it's not that the more expensive one was giving you more. Yeah. You start thinking, I'm getting less with this one. So, what, so, so the psychology of wanting to maximize the possibilities, it's something that I think is true to every human being. I mean, we're, we're efficient in nature. And, and some of us strive to be effective um, at the end to, to get the, the biggest bang for the buck. But we're efficient because we want to maximize every situation. So when, when you draw the analogy of looking at TV that's more expensive, it's a si similar analogy of purchasing from a service professional that gives you two choices. He can say, most people buy the middle option, 100 bucks, I'll come clean your pool every week, right? But if you pay 200 bucks, we're gonna give you the most premium service of your pool. And they don't say anything else. And you start filling in the gaps. What does that mean? You know, what, what does that awesome pool service that costs double mean? And you start, your imagination starts, you know, going at 100 miles per hour. And that excites people. The possibilities always excite people. And, 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 and when you use pricing to create that psychology, you actually drive the customer towards asking for more. And when they ask you for more and you're able to charge more, now you have a pressure because you, you, wanna, because you, you wanna make sure that whatever you said is gonna come true. You wanna make sure that if you set the expectation high, that you deliver high. So it elevates yourself as a professional when you offer something that's more expensive and some customers are saying yes and it starts happen it's, it's happened to me so you know i know that deep in our mind we're accountants we're frugal we don't want our customers to spend more than we need than they need and we know that there's some things that they need and they can get away with it and they will be happy but we also know that we can go the extra mile. And if the customer sees it, they're gonna be super excited about it. And we're so shy from offering that most of the times because we also wanna maximize the client's pocket and not giving you the ability to offer that higher price, that higher option, that premium service, that better TV, that 
open to interpretation, open to imagination, higher option, takes, takes away from the possibilities, the possibility uh, from the client's imagination perspective and the possibilities from you as a provider from your perspective, because you will get really damn creative, creative if you randomly price your service $800 more and the client said yes, because you wanna make sure you deliver $800 more. So it leads, it leads to innovation, it leads to higher expectations, it leads to propping yourself up and raising yourself up in the quality level and your customer will expect more and they will check you on value all the time. So that's why I, I agree with, with, with Jacob that that's, that, <laughs> that elevation of price elevates everything. That's great. That's really great. What, what do you think, Hector and Jacob, what do you think makes accountants naturally fearful or scared to elevate their prices or to think differently about it? It seems like our industry is filled with hardworking, good hardworking people that are good at their craft, willing to do close to dirt cheap work, right? Like the, the, the pricing for the work. They're, they're willing to give their value away for a pretty cheap price. Um, and then there's those in the industry who seem to have gotten over that fear of and really looked at value at, at this value pricing or looked at making sure they close the, the value gap, not as something um, bad, but as something that, like you said, Hector, provides great opportunity for both us as the accounting, as the accountants and our customers to receive the highest amount of value we can provide them as possible. So what, what do you think drives that fear in our particular industry? One word, efficiency. Efficiency. We are cursed with the need to be efficient. It is, it is the biggest problem. And we think efficiency means getting the client to pay the least amount for the, the most functional thing that just gets them by. You're right. That, that's what we call compliance, right? You know, that's compliance, right? Pay the least amount to get you enough to be compliant. And that's efficiency at its finest. And we come from a school of thought that efficiency is everything. And the only thing that will break that paradigm is when you understand what effectiveness means and when you strive to be effective, even at the risk of becoming inefficient. So again, when you strive to be effective, even at the risk of becoming inefficient. And accountants are so scared of being inefficient. And because of that, they, they pull themselves down. That's my answer. Jacob, what about you? No, I think you nailed it on the head. And I, there's a bigger part of our industry too that I think that, that struggles with um, still the hourly rate, right? So the reason we price it so low is because we are driven to be efficient. So we're like, what's the minimum number of hours that we could do this in? And then we take an hourly rate and we multiply it by that and we come up with some fixed fee that's not really a value bill. And then we've done that in our head. So then we go try to value bill it. And now we're stuck back on that number that we just anchored ourselves on. Mm -hmm. um, so now we've anchored ourselves low and we do that and then our accounting side kicks in and says, well, we need to be really cost effective, right? Well, and well, now we have this artificially no, low anchor point that we've now told ourselves we're worth. And when really the impact we can make is so much greater. Um, and actually I've seen some accountants struggle with that so much and the self-doubt in that, they're much more effective when they're on an hourly rate because suddenly they're not worried so much about the efficiency of it and they can focus more on the effectiveness of it. Right. And I've, I've seen some accounts that are really, really effective, but then when they switch over to a, a value bill or a fixed fee in their mind, they're trying to maximize profit. They're trying to maximize um, efficiency. And suddenly they start becoming a whole lot less effective to their clients, which then has negative impacts as well. So I really think Hector summed it up really well there on the efficiency versus effectiveness point um, because I see that as a huge problem. And I think some of it also goes back to just 
as accountants across the industry, a lot of them are more introverted than maybe what a salesperson would be, right? Who goes out and sells things. So I think there is a part of that as well that factors in there, but a lot of that comes back to anchoring yourself on something that maybe is not true and then therefore causing you self-doubt when you try to raise your price um, when you've anchored at a lower point. I wanna share this with you guys, okay? Uh, <laughs> in, in my research of uh, efficiency versus effectiveness uh, talk that I did in one of the conferences, I was looking for visual illustrations of the point. So if you were hired at, at Disney to, this guy has a, has a brush and has a, what do you call that scooper thing? Um, whatever, the scooper thing. Yeah. He, his job is to clean stuff, right? Right. This is a custodial, right? How long does it take for him to sit there and draw a Mickey Mouse on, on, the, on the floor? It's, it's completely pointless. It's completely inefficient, right? His job is to clean the park, not to do something fun in the floor, which obviously draws attention. And this is where it's just so clear. See, Disney's goal is to deliver happiness, is for people to walk out with a great experience, smiling. They want every detail to feel like a magical experience. If, if they were efficient, if they were efficient, okay, there would only be two dwarfs, not seven dwarfs, right? Because <laughs> it takes a lot more time to draw seven dwarfs, right? But, you know, like Snow White and two dwarves doesn't really make a lot of sense. So, so Disney is a perfect example where they go all out. I mean, Disney just goes all out and, and they fight the war of, it, of efficiency all towards being effective. Now, I would argue that Disney's food is the opposite of that. But uh, I would say you know, I, go to Disney, <laughs> I, go to, I go to Disney a lot and I really hate their food. But it's just a good example of you know, the, 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 the purpose of the employees who are not called employees are called cast members because everything they do is put up a show for the customers. It's to be effective, effective at delivering happiness, delivering smiles, creating memories. So as accountants, we are, you know, the opposite of that. You know, we, we, we have an employee who's supposed to clean and we're going to make sure they're cleaning nine to five, <laughs> right. not, not making sure that they're doing whatever it needs to be done to make the client smile and happy. And, and, and it's okay if the client smile and happy and you build loyalty and it brings you referrals and you, and you can raise the price and they don't complain about prices. Who cares about someone being inefficient if they're being effective? So there's only a few firms, a few companies, even outside of the accounting world that kind of evolved their thinking that way. And it's really hard at the beginning because it's hard to think of us spending non-productive time, right? Think about it, Michael and Jacob. You guys do advisory work for your customers, right? Is advisory work about stopping for a second and thinking and recalling back a book you read six years ago and recalling back and reflecting upon an experience from a similar client? Or telling the client, let me think about it for a couple of days and come back and give you an answer to the problem you're asking. Or is it about hearing the problem and going straight to the computer and typing up and make sure you're maximizing the time from the moment the client asks you for help to the moment you give them an answer. Your client doesn't care about how quickly you give them the answer. If the answer is wrong, they only care, hey, come back to me when the answer is right. So how the heck do I build thinking time, Right. So we're so afraid of idle time we're so, because that's inefficient that, that we get so caught up in it. And that's really, that, I think that's not the heart of it. It's just being so afraid of being inefficient and also inefficiency. We put the wrong label and stuff and call it inefficient, right? So somebody leaving early, oh, that's inefficient. Well, what if a person's leaving early because they feel super sick and it's better to have them rest than to just do crappy work for the last two hours of the day and have to redo it the next day, you know? So there's the little things that we just don't think about. And I've, I've been a corporate of it. I've been trying to evolve to that too. People in my office, they know that they, they've seen that change over time, but it, it just takes, takes some time to, to see things that way. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree, Hector. Your, your first, your comments about advisory, 
the cl- the clients are my clients that have advisory that we do advisory work for they they are not thinking about time they are not thinking about efficiency in regards to that advisory work they want effective advice they want to know that the experience they're having with you is one of value um and that they're re- gleaning and receiving insights from from you as an advisor that they couldn't get from anybody else and they assume you're going to have that because we get exposure to so many different kinds of industries. We get exposure to so many different kinds of clients. We get to see what makes one client more effective than another um, from a financial point of view, but also just from the personalities that we meet. And so we're able to glean all that information. And, and you said, ponder it, meditate on that, think about it and bring them real value um, on, on that advisory side. And that just, that, that, that doesn't not have to be just a, a financial statement or a KPI from a financial, it could be gen, you know, general advice about running your own practice, what you've seen has been effective for yourself. Um, and that's, you know, that's all super valuable in our clients. That's what they really care about. Um, the second thing you kind of ended on, and it is the, it is the kind of hypocrisy <laughs> or the challenge for, uh, accounting firm owners or accountants who want to take this journey is you want to take this journey on value um, and you want to price it on value, but we're still viewing, most of us are still view our employees as resources that we're paying for time for. And so therefore we want to maximize the efficiency of that time instead of promoting to our employees uh, about being effective. And so that's a great, that kind of brings up a great topic about, you know, a great segue into the area of pricing where how do we encourage and motivate and build our firms, not only on value pricing, but how, the, how then do we build the workforce around it to both understand as well as be excited about it? How can our, how can we drive our employees to be excited? What are those practical practices, whether it's, you no longer do timesheets or whether it is, um, you know, you actually get your bookkeeper involved in the uh, pricing process. Um, and then I'd love to hear your thoughts too on if this, if this is, this all sounds great. I'd love to hear your thoughts on why aren't the biggest firms, the big four and the other biggest firms, why are we, the, why are, why or why not are they involved or have they implemented across the board value-based pricing when we know they're still operating on time and material billing as management consultants or big accounting firms. So Jacob, what are your, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah. So I, I think you mentioned the one right off the top is eliminating the timesheet um, because obviously when you're selling at a value price and then tracking timesheets for your employees, and then you're saying it's more important for your employee to be efficient than effective. So you're passing the wrong message right along to your employees, which then is destroying the culture in your firm because you're talking about all how we want to provide value to clients. We want to do all these things. And then we're like, oh, but we want you to be as efficient as possible. And if not, there's a problem, right? Um, and I think you solve that through flex time, through not tracking time by client, right? You may have to have a timesheet for regulatory purposes, but that doesn't mean you have to track it by client so much anymore. And I really liked uh, how Bob Wang went around that because he incentivized them to be more effective because the more work they could take on, um, then the more they made, right? And then they were invested in that. But it was also even, he brought them into that pricing conversation with the client. So they kind of built that culture around making an impact on the client. So that is a, a great segue there that I think is taking that next step not only just destroying it and saying we're concerned about that, but truly making that employee invested in the impact that you're having on the client. Um, Because it's one thing to just say, all right, you don't have to track time anymore and we want you to be effective. But then if you're not somehow tracking that effectiveness or rewarding them for being effective, um, you start breaking things down, you know? That's really, really great. Yeah, so exactly what you're saying is that it's difficult to track effectiveness. That's the reality. It's 
it's easy to track money. We're accountants, so we know that. And it's easy to track time because we own watches, right? So those two things are easy. It's hard to track value, like va value is subjective. So there's no way to know value. Um, but what we do know is when somebody pays for something, we know they value it at, the, at least at that level, right? Mm -hmm. So the only way to know that somebody values something is they actually paid for it, right? That's why in accounting, we only uh, change the value of our assets or, um, or our investments or whatever until it's actually sold. We don't, we don't mark to market our assets. It's when we sell it that we actually know what the value is. So there has to be a transaction, an arm's length transaction to prove that someone else is willing to pay X amount for that good or service. That's how we know there's value. But remember when we're pricing, they haven't bought yet. So we're right at that, we're at that, at that moment where, where they haven't bought yet. So we don't know what the value is. And bottom line, that is the, that is the reason why it's so hard because we don't know how to measure effectiveness mm -hmm. of value. So if we go to an employee and, I, and, I've, and I've, I have that issue now, you know, I go to one of my employees and say, I want you to be more effective. And he or she turns around and says, okay, what does that look like? And then crickets, right? Because it's like, uh, you know, I don't know exactly what it looks like, but I do know one thing. If, remember that raise you asked for? If somehow your book of business had double the revenue, it would be a really easy conversation to talk about your raise, right? So I, I don't know exactly what it looks like, but if the economics are there, if someone's willing to pay more for what you already do, then I should be able to pay more for what you already do. And that's, and that's the difficulty, you know, in, in my business, in my, in my office, we pay people a fixed salary. We don't have, we don't pay hourly, but we pay a fixed salary. And some of my employees are still a bit new and they haven't gotten to a point where, where we can they have consistent book of business that they, that they do, that they do every month. And the revenue has a specific, you know, two X, three X of what their income is. So it's still sort of variable. People are still sort of learning. So it's gotten to a point where I can say, okay, this is where we are. Here's the baseline. Let's go to the next level. But I've had the conversations about a raise, you know, a few times where, you know, where, Hey, here's your raise. And people are, like, Oh, I'm disappointed. I was expecting whatever thousand dollars more. And I usually ask, well, do you know, you know, how much you bring in now? And, and most of the times it's like, well, I know it's a lot, but I don't know exactly what the number is. <laughs> well, you know what? I'm going to give you some life advice, whether you work with me or someone else. When you ask for a raise, you better be able to talk about value. Mm. You better be able to talk about value. And usually the value is I'm responsible. I'm a good team member. You know, I come in, I come home with, I come to the work with a smile. I don't wait until five o'clock to leave. All those things are great, by the way. I love that, right? You want to be a, a, a person that brings in culture, but sell me on your value before you ask mm. me for a raise. Mm. You know, like, why do I hold you to a different standard than my customers do? I just don't go to my customers and say, oh, by the way, it's a new year. I'm going to raise it to 20%. Have fun, pay the bill. It doesn't work that way. We have this really long, intricate conversation about the value of a relationship and what else we're going to do and how we're going to deliver. And we set goals and we meet them and we guarantee the performance of it. And we give guarantees to say, if you're not happy, just tell me, I'll give you your money back or, or a portion of it, right? Because sometimes, you know, you, you want to be fair and give a portion of it if you've done part of the work before the customer told you it's, you know, it's incomplete or they're not happy or whatever. But why are employees not coming onto our buses and placing a case for value? It's just, oh, I've been here for two years. I deserve a raise. I think that as a value pricing firm who has the practices of communicating value, understanding value, and placing a price to the value that's below the value, I believe it needs to seep down and all the employees and all the team members need to kind of evolve to the same thing. And I don't, I don't have the answer. My firm is not the perfect example. I've given people raises and stuff, but I haven't gotten to a point, you know, like Bob, where I can sell my practice to a big, big four and prove that I have a great concept. I'm still learning this and I'm learning this specific side. You know, I, I've mastered, I mastered my ability to talk to my client about value. 
I've mastered that. I'm not expert at it, but I feel extremely comfortable with it. Now it's time to get my, my entire firm on the ball. And I want my employees, like I told my employees, I want you to make 200 grand. I want you to, because that means that you're bringing in 400 for my firm. That's the bottom line. You know, so, so when you have a plan to bring it and you bring it, at that point, we'll talk about a raise or, or variable comp, whatever that looks like. What about you, Michael? That's what about you? How, how are you compensating your employees for value? <laughs> That's really great, man. Well, uh, I don't, I have not, definitely not figured this out. Um, you know, one challenge I have around this is, I think this is a particular state by state. Um, our, our bookkeepers who have the title bookkeeper are compensated by the hour and they qualify for overtime in the state of Vermont. So the state of Vermont would define a bookkeeper as a clerical worker. Um, and, and so they would be hourly and they, they would then be, be a, be a, uh, an, a non, a non-exempt employee and receive overtime pay. So we, uh, you know, and so by default, we allow all of our employees who are bookkeepers to receive overtime pay. And I've, I've not yet found, I, I would say, I've had this conversation with several employees. Um, I would say the majority of bookkeepers, because of the way our industry has been around, because of the, of the personalities it draws, their incentive, um, their incentive is not the same in regards to what they desire as a salesperson maybe is. For example, my salesperson, he has a small base, very small base, and he's driven by commission. Um, and he likes that. He likes the idea of being will have unlimited potential for his uh, income. Uh, I actually don't know many bookkeepers that are employees, not the ones that own their own firms, but employees who actually want that. Uh, most of the bookkeepers I meet are driven by stability. They want something predictable and stable. So they like the idea of knowing, okay, you're, I'm going to have around 40 hours a week of work. I'm going to get paid this per hour or, or um, in, in, in equivalently, this could be equivalent to a salary of X, whether it's 40 or 45,000 a year. And I find that most of the bookkeepers we talk to, uh, it, it they're, 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 most of the bookies we talk to, they want that predictability of salary. And I agree with you, Hector. There's this an assumption, and I think it's because um, how we train, how we've been trained or train our employees, there's an assumption for some reason that if you, if you are, are at a place, like you work somewhere, and you're there for a certain period of time, that that time of longevity equals all of a sudden by default equals that you're more valuable. Um, or um, the assumption is if you put in extra hours, let's just say you're a salary, salary employee and, and you put in extra hours, the assumption is my extra hours equate to more value or more pay. There seems to be this, you know, I put, I put in 50 hours this week for two months straight. Um, if I put in 50 hours for two months straight, my boss will notice, therefore I'm more valuable. I should get a raise or I should get a bonus or some kind of compensation from that. There's these like these things, assumptions. And Hector, you, you know, you're saying, we'll have the value conversation. I want you to make more money, but the the metrics or the value has to be there. And the assumption is the value is around more time right now or about around, I work very hard, whatever that means, like whatever that word means, work hard. Um, you can't measure work hard. Like, what does that mean? You know, I, you sweat when you're working or your, uh, your keyboard is breaks every month because you're typing so fast and hard. I think it's a very hard conversation for most of us because they just there's an assumption of value connected to hours or connected to longevity um, or whatever. Um, so that's very interesting. I think I still I still think I'm trying to figure this out. I think I think I know what that looks like for salespeople. You know, I can inherently see that because they're connected to the value of price or the value of revenue. But generally, bookkeepers 
I find, and you know, you guys might have a different opinion. I find most bookkeepers don't want to be connected to that idea of increased revenue. They don't want that stress. That, that's what they would call it, stress or pressure. They want to be connected to a stable salary or stable pay that they know they, they're going to get if they do their work. And that's, you know, that's in their mind. And of course they want that they would love to have a raise every, every year or something like that. But I would say it's actually really unique. I find it unique when a person comes to me and says, Hey, I know I'm a bookkeeper, but I want to grow and I'm going to do whatever it takes. And I want to know what it takes to actually grow. Like when I have an employee come to me and actually want to have that conversation, they initiate it. That's actually pretty rare. Um, to, to find that in a person that actually has that proactive approach. Um, so I'm still think, I think I'm still learning it and, and modeling. It means actually having this conversation with my employees one-on-one and showing them how I approach pricing with our customers and the conversation. And like what you just said, Hector, what you do with your employees, giving them a little bit of advice on you better, you should always come into the conversation with knowing your value. If we're going to talk about, a salary increase or a pay increase or compensation increase. And let's be creative. Let's be open to being creative um, about that idea of compensation, not just being tied to a salary or per hour rate. Jake, what need, are you, what is that? Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. I, I want to nitpick on the word bookkeeper for a second, if you, if you don't mind. You have, <laughs> yes. Michael, you, you have 17 employees, right? Something like that, 17. Yeah, close to 20. Yep, yep. Okay. Yep. And most of them are bookkeepers. Is that is that the label that you use for them? Yep. Or, use or they use for themselves, bookkeeper? Yeah, yeah, no, we, yeah, we literally use the title bookkeeper and then we have senior accountants if they've gone to another. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So one of, my, one of my major pet peeves is the word bookkeeper itself doesn't bother me. It's the I'm just a bookkeeper thing that gets under my skin. Exactly. Exactly. That gets under my skin. That gets absolutely under my skin. For two reasons. One, because bookkeeping means different things to different people. I mean, that's a universal truth. And my business is called Quick Bookkeeping. So I can tell you firsthand <laughs> that I, in the in 10 years that I've been in business, how every single customer says, oh, you do bookkeeping. Okay, I want you to do X. And that X is different every <laughs> single time. So in the market, bookkeeping means different things. In our world, Bookkeeping means different things. So for somebody to grab a word that's so universal and so misunderstood and use it to label themselves and then also to call themselves a bookkeeper because that's, that's a strata of some sort, to me, it's a problem. So one, we either need to eradicate the word, transform it to something else, or allow people to trans- give themselves a different title that better describes their capacity to do more than what the marketplace understands to be bookkeeping or misunderstands to be bookkeeping. So that's why I wanted to nitpick at that because that's, 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 a, that, that's some of the challenges. So when someone comes to you and says, I want to do more, I want to learn more, I want to be on the field, I want to be a senior accountant, they are the ones that know that calling themselves a, bookkeeping, a bookkeeper is it's anchoring themselves down. Now, again, I, I'm a bookkeeper. That's what I am, right? The name of my business is Quick Bookkeeping. I'm very proud of my roots as a bookkeeper, and I want to help elevate the bookkeeping profession. But unfortunately, the word, the word, it's just misused and misunderstood. And maybe there's, there's, there's time to, to build a revolution either around creating a humongous PR strategy <laughs> to make the word better or for people to start giving themselves a different word, a right. different word, right? Just, just call yourself something else so people don't misunderstand or place a label or their own definition on who you are or just what you are. Sorry, I wanted to mention that. Yeah, Jacob, Jacob, what, yeah, Jacob what do you think about yeah. that? Like, well, you- so Hector, I think in my firm, what we did is we changed that term and we used customer success agent because I wanted to stress the point that their job was to make the customer successful. So therefore they're providing value because, and that's a different look on that, right? Because if you're making that customer successful, you're not just doing compliance and data entry. And this actually gets in the bigger, back to that whole pricing conversation. If you are 
I'm going to use this term loosely here in quotes, kind of like you did, just a bookkeeper, like by definition, doing data entry, not really providing value, those type of things. Then we actually go back and say, efficiency is probably more important than effectiveness there, right? It's when you start moving beyond that step that effectiveness becomes really, really important. And I think it is a challenge to get employees to move beyond that. Because I even, using customer success agents, you know, it's it can still be challenging to take that next step and help people move beyond that. And not all bookkeepers want to, right? Um, and it's how do you motivate them to truly understand that their effectiveness is directly tied to the profits of the company, right? There's this disconnect between what they do and the profit of the company. And then therefore there's a disconnect between how they feel that they do their job and their compensation, right? Because they feel like they need a raise because they've worked 50 hours a week for the last three weeks. Well, really that actually costs the firm money and I'm supposed to pay you more money, right? Like there's a disconnect here when you really didn't do a better job. You didn't do these things. You cost the firm more money and now I should be rewarding you for that. So I think that disconnect is definitely challenging. Um, but I also agree, Hector, that the term bookkeeping needs to go away, needs to be changed. Um, something needs to be realigned there of what is bookkeeping and what does it mean? And I really think as we look toward the future that it's about providing value, not about doing the Webster definition of bookkeeping, right? Um, and it is that move to advisory that we've been talking about for years that truly needs to start happening. And we talked about this last week. <laughs> Here we go again. <laughs> Got to bring it back full circle. <laughs> we, we talked about this last week, right? Um, Claudel. Into it is testing, right? Which means that they're teasing the market that they could offer a live bookkeeping service with their QuickBooks. It's not active yet. It's just there as a, I, I call it a, what do you, um, uh, clickbait teaser, teaser. It's, it's, it's clickbait, clickbait um, yeah. right because but in you know in their computer system they're measuring you know what percentage of people are clicking through and that sort of thing just trying to understand whether whether there are people out there that are purchasing quickbooks for the first time that don't have an accountant that would toy with the idea of getting bookkeeping bundled with the software so do we want a large multi-billion dollar company to define our profession because we don't know what this is going to look like. We don't know if that's this is going to exist. But this has brought up such a great conversation mm -hmm. this, this whole week. Podcasts and articles and people all talking about it and speculating about what would it look like when the biggest player in the market, QuickBooks, offers a service called bookkeeping. So huh. what does this really mean? Does this really mean that QuickBooks has finally admitted that a bookkeeper is needed in order to use the tool. That's an interesting one. That's possible. Does it mean that uh, book that, that, that Intuit is possibly filling some gaps between what other accounting and bookkeeping firms are not offering and they're capturing a whole market that's not being currently served by accountants? That could mean that. Or could it just mean that they don't know what it means and they're trying to figure out what people think what it means and when people start paying $200 a month for it, then they're going to figure out how their business works. And then from that whole learning, they can go in multiple paths, right? One, they can turn into a software slash service business. That could happen. Or two, they'll realize that they need bookkeepers or whatever you want to call themselves more than ever. Or three, they may commoditize the entire bookkeeping industry at some point because they figured out how to charge one universal price to everybody and completely dilute the value of a bookkeeper by calling a bookkeeper. So can you, can you fight the war against QuickBooks? Probably not. So your job right now is to foresee that this is a real possibility. And if it does happen, if bookkeeping is Uberized, right? It's turned into an Uber by QuickBooks, by Intuit. If that happens, 
then you better change the label because then people are going to compare you to this. And people are going to use that as an anchor to say, well, should I go with a market leader in counting software? And because they are, they know what bookkeeping means. Or, you know, so-and-so Joe Blow that calls himself a bookkeeper. That's going to be a tough sell. So, um, so if the word bookkeeping gets monopolized by this accounting software, you may want to change your name. Yeah, you know, no. they want to change yeah. your name because it happened. It happened to QuickBooks. It happened to QuickBooks, right? Uh, QuickBooks build a name around the word books, and then a lot of other companies, FreshBooks, Soho Books, whatever else books, right, comes out because they're 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 playing on that name. Um, so so you have to think about a, a big company like this has the capacity to take over the word and redefine it. And right. They that's can. really that's really great. They and yeah, and Hector, you, your your point of do we want a uh, big corporation defining it? it has nothing to do with we want. They they don't need our permission, right? They, they don't need our permission. Um, they have been at this game. They have, are in the influence of the industry, and frankly, m- many of us, most of us, love the direction they're taking. I I for one am absolutely fascinated by what they're going to learn, and I hope they succeed in whatever it is they're doing one, because it's opening up amazing conversation. It's going to force us to innovate. Um, you know, one of the things they're doing is they are anchor pricing the term, right? They're anchor pricing the term to $200 a month. Now there's a whole list of details of what the services will really be, but I still think they're going to figure that out. Just like, just like they've underpriced QBO for a long time the value you're, you're getting out of QBO as a software is a lot more value than they're, than they're charging. Um, but a lot of companies do that for strategic reasons, right? Q, QBO, Intuit has wanted QBO to be the, the, the operating system of a small business. So they want to get you in, and then they want to sell you all the other services that they're actually selling at market rate. QBO is the platform to get you in. So I think this... My theory is, I don't know, I don't have any inside information on this, but my theory is, is that Intuit is testing up the market and they're seeing the trends. The one of the things that hasn't been talked about a lot is you talk about the Uberizing. They are seeing the trends of the gig economy. The reality is more and more people are becoming independent contractors or 1099s or whatever you want to call them more across the world. And so they're seeing the trends of people who want to work for themselves, who want to be contractors, not employees. And this is an opportunity for them to help the bookkeeping profession, the outcounting profession out there who are, most of us are terrible at sales in the profession. We're actually bad at it and we're bad at pricing. You know, if think about this, if we actually had all anchored our profession to not 200 a month, but more like 500 a month, 750 a month, a thousand a month, their pricing probably would be a lot higher. It frankly probably would be because they'd realize, oh, wow, the, the market is actually a lot higher. We need to be anchoring at 400, 500, 600. But they know accountants, there's so many accounts in the industry that are so cheap that they can anchor at 200 a month. And frankly, it's actually not that cheap compared to the industry. There are a lot of people in our profession and a lot of our peers and some of our own clients where we're only charging them 150, 200, 300. 250 a month for cash basis bookkeeping or whatever the bookkeeping, you know, is that we're offering. And so that's, I, I, I'm really fascinated by it. I think, I, I hope they're successful at whatever they figure out. And I think we're all going to learn a ton from it. Jacob, what are your thoughts? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm with you completely. And I excited to where it goes. You know, we don't know exactly what the service is going to look like at all. Um, but I think they've learned a lot from the find the find a pro advisor site, you know how many times? I don't know what the stat is, but how many times have they matched somebody and somebody walks away because they don't have clear pricing? And you see, uh, as you look at our economy as a whole, the subscription, the SaaS model is exploding, right? The subscription-based model where you can just go to a website, you see a price, you sign up, is exploding along with the gig economy. So how do you take? those two rapid growth uh, portions of our economy and put them together into a product that you can present, right? And I think that is where they're going. And 
I think there is something to be said for that. And I, I'm excited to see where they go. I think it also will force a lot of us across our industry to step our game up and start providing impactful service instead of efficient services. And, and I think, I think there is going to be a small opportunity where uh, Intuit might say, Hey, we've got so much demand for this. We really don't want to hire all the workforce, you know, for this. We want to just match you to pro advisors. And there's still that possibility um, because there are still lots of pro advisors. Um, and also it's stickiness for their software because it keeps customers in QBO versus going to another platform. One of, one of the theories I'm thinking, and we, we don't know this, but does Intuit actually keep a tally of all the people that cancel their QBO accounts, right? We, I, we don't know if they do. But if they do, let's assume that they, they take out a survey. And the, and the most common answer is, I couldn't figure it out. Or, you know, it, it was too confusing. Oh, the chart of accounts scared me. My banks never reconciled. Well, that is unlikely to happen if you have an accountant or a bookkeeper attached to it. So if their data is telling them that people are leaving the software for the wrong reasons and the right reasons is to attach a bookkeeper and we as a profession are not good enough to get in front of these people yeah. because we're not. No. This is the worst profession <laughs> for marketing ever. Ever, yeah. Ever. <laughs> I mean, I make my half-ass videos from my home office, sometimes unshaven. And I have the biggest YouTube channel on accounting. Because <laughs> our colleagues are so damn lazy. Yeah, we're bad. Yeah. We're bad at we're it. So I mean, attorneys bad. are way ahead of us. Way yeah, ahead of attorneys. us. Attorneys. Attorneys are way <laughs> ahead of us. Attorneys. I mean, you, you got like, you know, like Instagram consultants are better than us <laughs> at marketing their services. It's true. Because... because our industry is way too comfortable. We're comfortable with the automatic business. We're comfortable with the automatic assumption that people will, will renew every month and every year. Mm -hmm. We're comfortable that, that customers are lazy, that they don't want to explain their financial situation to another person. So they, they keep our crappy service, which is <laughs> dismal at best. Our profession is horrible at this. And if we don't man the F up, Right and and turn up our game. Some little software company from some yeah. little place in the world is gonna completely Uberize our industry, and we had no idea where it came from. At least with Intuit, we're seeing it. Like it's right there, right? Right. It's we know right them. <laughs> we, we know them. They're our partner. We use their tools. Some of us make money with with QuickBooks. <laughs> so at least with Intuit, we're we're, we're kind of sleeping with the enemy, so it works. <laughs> but the next one. The next one, the real disruptor, it's not gonna be QuickBooks. It's gonna be something that you have no idea where it came from. No idea, right? It may be something with blockchain, it may be even a bank. It's like banks. Banks, I'm surprised that banks didn't just say, you know what? Why is QuickBooks taking our business? We are the ones managing our clients' money. Think think about that. Who's better than a bank to help us with our accounting? So any, it, it's anybody's game now. So if we don't learn how to market ourselves as value creators, not just compliance mm. makers or whatever, I don't know what the right word is. Sometimes I got good words. Sometimes I got bad words. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like Trump. I, I, just, I, just, I just brag about having the best words, but I don't have them. Um, so, <laughs> so anyway, um, so yeah, so... I think that I think that's kind of our issue. And pricing to, to do full circle in this, pricing could be one of the avenues that a solution. We use a solution yeah. that we used to kick ourselves in the butt and say, what would this look like if it was double the price? Mm. What would this look like if it was double the price? What would I have to do different, better? You know, how do I have to wow my customers if it had to be double the price? And and, and if you think in that dimension. I think you will function different too, but that's where pricing can also fix our profession, in my opinion. I, I'm gonna. Um, I'm glad you showed the screen because um, I'm gonna start the counter to QB live bookkeeping, and it's gonna be uh, reconciled dead bookkeeping. <laughs> 
<laughs> that would be the, that would be my counter service. Um, and so the bookkeeping we're going to do is, is just, is dead. It's just dead bookkeeping. We're, <laughs> we're going to basically take bookkeeping, destroy it in our firm <laughs> and do something else. That's basically what we're going to do. It's the opposite of what, and just to see how, how that plays out. But no, this has yeah. been fun, guys. That, that's easy, Michael. You can say, we're yeah. going to make it look as if bookkeeping didn't exist. Yes, exactly. Right? And <laughs> you're just going to see the end result. Exactly. Bookkeeping's dead, right? Reconcile dead, book, killed bookkeeping, and we <laughs> turn that into something that actually adds value to your business. No, that's really, really great. That's great. Jacob, any final thoughts? Great marketing line, Hector. We're, we're killing bookkeeping and making it impactful to your business instead. <laughs> that's great. Well, thanks, guys. This has been a great conversation. Uh, looking forward to next week. Good night, guys. Good night, guys. Bye. Bye. Bye.